Well, let me go ahead and uh, pray, and then we're going to get into a new section here uh, this morning. Our gracious Father, we, as we just sang these songs about your loving kindness, we don't deserve this. We confess to you that we often forget how needy we really are. We've walked with you for a period of time and, and been, been so over, overwhelmed by your grace, your mercy, and your love. And we, and we live in that, Lord. We forget how desperately we need it because we often take it for granted. You are so kind and generous to us. Lord, we ask today that you will, again, simply remind us, each of us as individuals, where we would be had you not, at a, at a point in time in our life, made yourself known to us a need for a Savior, if we would have continued on the path that we were on, the way we were thinking, the way we were living, where would we be today? Would we even be here today? Because, Lord, choices have consequences. But you've been so good to reveal yourself, to make yourself known to us, to bring people into our lives who will encourage us and point us toward You, and giving us Your Word in our own language that we can read and understand, and Your Spirit who works in us as we put our trust in Christ. Your Spirit now takes and guides our steps and takes us and helps us understand and apply this Bible that You've given us. Lord, today as we take a look here at the Begin looking at the poetic books. Lord, we want to understand this portion of Scripture. Understand how it is written and how we can best understand or best hear from You through these portions of Scripture and grow in relationship. So we ask that You would guide us, that again, this would not be simply an academic exercise you will take these truths and help us to understand how these minister deeply to us. Thank you, Father. We ask for your grace to guide us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, back in April, I believe it was, of 2021, we began an expedition through the Old Testament history. All right, and we went from Genesis all the way to Nehemiah, the first 17 books of the Bible. We began with creation, and then the fall of man, and then we saw God call out this man from the Ur of Chaldees named Abram. And he made a covenant with him and said, through you I'm going to uh, make a great nation and, and, and bless all the peoples of the earth. Changed his name to Abraham, and Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And that family of 
12 sons and their wives and children, people, 70 people in all were taken from the, the land that God had given them because now there was a famine there, took them down into Egypt to, to spare them from the famine, and that family grew from 70 to over 2 million people over 430 years. And they became oppressed by the, the, the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so they cried out to God, and God raised up a deliverer named Moses. And, and he delivered them out through the Passover and in through the, the parting of the Red Sea into the wilderness where on Mount Sinai God gave them the Ten Commandments and all these instructions we read about um, in, in, the, uh, in Deuteronomy. And, and he gave them the instructions of how to worship in the, in the tabernacle, in the sacrificial system, and and God was teaching this people how to be the people of God. And then He took them into the promised land. And He gave them their inheritance in the land. And then He raised up prophets and priests and kings to lead them. That they would walk as the people of the one true and living God. And yet they rebelled. Over and over and over again. Throughout their history, they turned to idols rather than serving the living God. So God brought discipline upon them. After the, the kingdom was divided between two because of their rebellion, we had the northern kingdom, which was made up of ten tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, which was made up of two tribes. God brought the Assyrians in, and they took captive the northern kingdom and dispersed them throughout their kingdom. And then a little later, because of the southern kingdom's rebellion, God raised up the, the, the uh, nation of Babylon, and they came and they conquered them and took them captive to Babylon for 70 years. But God, in His grace and His mercy, brought His people back from Babylon, back into the promised land, helped them rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple, and reestablish themselves in the land as God's covenant people. And that's where we ended our our uh, expedition through Old Testament history. This morning we want to pick up with that study through the Old Testament here with the poetic books. And through the, the, the summer months, we're going to look at these five Old Testament poetic books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and, and even Song of Solomon. We want to understand how these books fit and why they've been given to us. They've been written in a different style than the historical books. And so this morning, I want to give you an introduction to Hebrew poetry. To get just an, a little understanding of how this book is written, how these books are written, and how we can understand them. So I'm calling this an expedition through Old Testament poetry. And if you remember, I chose the word expedition rather than any other word we could use for this journey. Because an expedition is an excursion, a journey, or a voyage made for a specific purpose. And we have a purpose in this. In fact, a threefold purpose. First is to gain a broad understanding of Hebrew poetry. So that we can better understand how God communicates through these particular books of the Bible. Secondly, to get an overview of each of these five poetic books so that we understand as we go to read Job or, or the Psalms or even Song of Solomon, we might understand what is this book about. 
generally speaking. And then thirdly, to understand the value of these books in our walk, our relationship with God. A couple of, couple of uh, truths about these books. Well, first of all, about Hebrew poetry, one-third of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is written in poetry. A whole one-third of it. In fact, there are only five books of the Old Testament that appear to have no poetry at all in them. And that would be Le- Leviticus, Ruth, Ezra, um, Haggai, and Malachi. <coughs> Every other Old Testament book contains some piece of Hebrew poetry in it. But these five books we're going to look at, which are called the poetic books, serve as a hinge, according to the uh, uh, talk through the Bible, Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Bowe, they say the five books we now know as the poetical books serve as a hinge which links the past of the historical books to the future of the prophetic books. Kind of is that uh, that hinge between these two. These books explore the ex- experiential present and emphasize the lifestyle of godliness. Unlike the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the twelve historical books, the poetical books do not advance the story of the nation of Israel. We're not moving historically anymore. Okay. Instead, they delve deeply into the crucial questions of pain of who God is, of wisdom, life, and love. And they do so in a present tense way. So in other words, you've got these five books all historically fit into the 17 books we've already covered. And what they do is they help us to understand what life was like for individuals. They help us understand the emotion and the things that people went through when... when uh, when historical things happened, what was going on emotionally and spiritually? And how does a person walk through these difficult things in a relationship with God? What does that look like? Well, these books help us understand that better. The authors of the book, Old Testament Survey, the message form and background of the Old Testament say this about poetry. Poetry in any language is highly compressed language, generally using word images to convey larger meanings, emotive figures rather than rationalizations. Therefore, one must recognize that the message to some extent is controlled by the form. Thus, one should at least know what Hebrew poetry is and how to recognize it. So it's important that we understand poetry in general. Poetry is usually shortened, but is packed with so much uh, emotional language and vivid pictures that there's so much more being said than the few words that are, that are going on there. That's the beauty of poetry. And, uh, and Hebrew poetry is like this. It provides that, that kind of emotional understanding, word pictures and, and, and these kind of things that help us to feel like we're there and we're experiencing it and it helps us to connect with the situation. You may never have to, like we heard last week from, from Sean, you may never have to face uh, a 10-foot man in, in a full armor, but you certainly have your own God. 
And so poetry helps to take an image like that and connect it to the reality of what you're facing and how do we handle these things. Well, you have some notes there and... um, and actually, somebody said to me when they saw this, they said, we weren't sure if you were preaching or if Paul Williams was preaching. Because um, Paul gives us a lot of detailed information. Um, and I hope this isn't, uh, this isn't just academic as I share this, but, but I want you to understand uh, some of these important truths about po- Hebrew poetry so that, and I wanted you to have it so that you could go back to it. And uh, as you're reading through these different books that you can... Look and see how this is because it helps us to better understand. So let me just give you some of this information. So the five poetic books illustrate three different kinds of poetry. One, lyric poetry. Originally occupy, uh, occupied by, or accompanied, I'm sorry, by music on the lyre. And so it often has strong emotional elements. And this is what we find in the Psalms. And the Psalms were put to music and they were sung. And this became the, the Psalms became the hymnal for the nation of Israel. It was written for that purpose. Secondly, didactic poetry, which teaches principles about life by means of short maxims. And of course, the book of Proverbs is an example of that, and Ecclesiastes is also like that. These short, pithy statements that, that speak about reality. And in that short verse, there's this, this, this huge principle of life that comes in a very short statement. That's what this didactic poetry is. Thirdly, dramatic poetry, which is a dialogue in poetic form. And that's what we have in the book of Job and the book of Song of Solomon. So we have these different kinds of poetry that we have illustrated in these different five books. Now, English poetry... It's characterized by rhythm and meter. Right? And so, uh, for example, uh, a simple poem that, that you, you all recognize. Right? Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. We can remember that because it rhymes. Right? The last of these, they, they rhyme and there's meter. It's, it's the same syllables and this kind of thing. It helps to remember. And it's, it's catchy. It's, it's, it, you know, and we like the, the sound of things uh, rhyming. And many songs that we have, hymns that we have, are written this way. They're easier to remember because of that. And, uh, and this is how e- English poetry is. The key to English poetry is a repetition of sound. Well, Hebrew poetry is not found in a repetition of sounds, but the key is found in a repetition of thought. And this is referred to as parallelism. So it's a rhyming of ideas rather than sounds. And the good thing about this is that this is it's able to translate from one language to another. If you were to translate an English poem into another language, it would not have the rhyme because the words are not going to rhyme. But the neat thing about Hebrew poetry is you can, cha- you can take it from Hebrew to English and keep the rhythm of thought. So we can see it even though we have translated it from Hebrew to English because it's a a rhyming of ideas, of thoughts, concepts. Well, there are at least six kinds of parallelism. And these are the six probably most 
uh, prominent or the easiest to recognize uh, in our English translation. There are many others. And if you, again, if you want to dive into that in great detail, there are books out there. And I'm sure that Paul, Paul Williams would love to have a conversation with you about all that. Uh, he he loves, loves these things. And so, uh, but here are six of them. Synonymous parallelism. And I want to give you some examples of this. Synonymous parallelism is the, the, the second line reinforces the thought of the first line using synonyms, using a similar word or concept. So Psalm 3, verse 1. Psalm 3, verse 1. I'm not going to look at every one of these examples, but just the, some of them. But I've given you some examples so you can look at that. And, and uh, But Psalm 3, verse 1 says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. There is a, he's saying the same thing. Many have, uh, uh, my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Same thing. He's not saying something different. He's saying the same thing in different words. Why would he do that? To emphasize it. To reinforce the, the idea. It also helps us to get a bigger, maybe a bigger concept of it. Right? When, you, when you explain something and you re-explain it, re-explain it again, right, you kind of get it. This is how this is. So it's synonymous. Um, Proverbs 1 verse 5 um, says, The wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Saying the same thing, but by saying it in different words, it gives you more to meditate on as you think about it. The point here is that a wise person looks for advice, hears advice, takes advice. Right? A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. You go after it. So stating it again brings a richness to the concept. This is what Hebrew poetry does. So that's synonymous parallelism. Then there's antithetical parallelism, which is the second line contrast the first. Much of the book of Proverbs is written this way, particularly from chapter 10 on, where you've got opposites stated. Psalms, we see this. Psalm 1-6. For the Lord knows... The way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Usually that word but gives you a hint into this. That's a contrast, right? It's antithetical. So for one, the way of the, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's acquainted with the way of the righteous. He watches over the way of the righteous. He knows all about it, but then the way of the wicked will perish. It, it ends. It, it, it is out of God's parameter here. And, and the whole thing about this is judgment. God's with and God's at work with the righteous, whereas the wicked is not. And then in Proverbs, there's, there's a couple Proverbs. Proverbs 12.15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Right? The way of a fool He's right in his own eyes. He thinks he's right about everything. He's going to do what he thinks, and he's going to walk that way. But he says, but 
wise man listens to counsel. A wise man says, I may think I'm right, but I I may not be. So I'm going to listen to someone else. I'm going to hear. I'm going to gather all the information, and I'm going to make a wise choice. We've got contrast. Um, what is it? Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We've got contrast. And so when you read that, you say, okay, I have a choice. When somebody comes at me, and I have a choice, how am I going to respond? Am I going to respond gently and diffuse the situation? Or am I going to respond in like kind with a harsh word, and it's just going to stir things up more? I've got a choice. And that scripture clearly says it's going to be one or the other. What are you going to choose? short little statement, easy to remember, but tuck it away as you're walking through life and you're thinking about it and somebody comes with something, you, you're in that moment. I know, what, I know what I can do here. I can diffuse this. That's keep, keeping calm, being gentle and responding. Or I can just react in my anger and it's not going to be good. Antithetical shows the, the contrast. A third is synthetic parallelism, where the second line takes a thought begun in the first line and completes it. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's not repeating it, it's not synonymous, it's not antithetical, the opposite. What it's doing is completing it. The Lord is my shepherd, so what? What does that mean? It means that I have no want. It means that as my shepherd, he takes care of me. He provides what I need. He watches over me. He cares for me. And so I have no want. It completes that. Proverbs 4.23, right? Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? From it flow the springs of life. So it completes the, the truth that's stated. Watch over your heart. Why would I do that? What, what does that mean? It means to... to Protect my heart from negative things coming in. Why would I do that? Because the, what's in the heart's going to come out in the life. It's like spring of water flowing out of me. That's synthetic parallelism. It finishes, completes a thought that started by the first. And then there's emblematic, emblematic parallelism, which simply means the one line conveys the main point, and the second line or other line illuminates it with an image. So you got a lot of imagery in the Scriptures. What? Psalm 42, 1? As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for thee, O Lord. Got this image of a, a deer out in the woods and, and, and going to the stream and, and finally getting its thirst quenched. I mean, the Bible could just say, well, yeah, I really, really want the Lord. <laughs> but no, as a deer pants for, longs for, desires the water, the refreshment of the water, the, the cool stream as it's flowing by, as you're seeing all this imagery, it says, so my soul longs and thirsts for the, the God, the living God. Much more emotion in that. Much more feeling and, and understanding of what's going on inside of the psalmist when he says that. 
Psalm 103, if you, you turn there, Psalm 103 um, uses some of this language when it speaks about our relationship with God. Verses 11 through 13. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far, or so great, is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. See, the Bible could just say, well, God loves you a lot. Okay? But the Bible says, do you know how far the heavens are above the earth? I don't know. I can't see it. I know. It's way further than you can imagine. That's how much God loves you. See, that's better than, well, God loves you more than you can imagine. No. As far as the heavens are above, while I'm trying to consider how far that is, God loves me that much. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. See, that's, that's much bigger than saying God, God forgave you. God separated our sins. I mean, how far is the east from the west? You can never connect east and west. It just keeps on going. You say, well, so God removed my sins so far that I, I can't ever go find the end of it. Exactly. See, this is what emblematic parallelism does. It provides a, an image that you can picture in your head to understand a concept that may be far beyond your ability to to, to uh, conceptualize without an image. And then fifthly, climactic parallelism. The clauses reveal truth in an ascending fashion. We had that in the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 118. Um, I didn't even write that one down there, but, but if you go to Psalm 118 again, you see right this, this whole uh, idea of the... Um, He says, give thanks, verse 1, to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness endures and is everlasting. Oh, let, the, oh, let Israel say His loving kindness is everlasting. And then there's an, oh, let the house of Aaron say His loving kindness. Oh, let all who fear the Lord. Right? There's this ascending, building. And this is how this is. And it's intended to repeat phrases and add different things so that you can follow that progression. It's to build momentum. And excitement about what? About the loving kindness of God. It's not just Israel. It's not just the priests, the house of Aaron. It's everyone who fears the Lord. His loving kindness extends through us all. It's amazing. That's Psalm 29 I have there that uh, talks about the voice of the Lord. And just keeps repeating it. The voice of the Lord is this. The voice of the Lord is that. And, and it just continues on. And then the last is chiastic parallelism. And this one's a little bit a little bit more difficult, I think, to recognize in English. Um, and, and there are many scholars are, are kind of disagreed on how some people believe the whole Bible was written in a chiastic structure. Basically, a chiastic structure is is a number of parallel lines forming an hourglass shape, often with the central line being the, the key that's emphasized. So, for example, uh, 
Isaiah 55. This is a passage that many of us are familiar with, but you may not know that it's written in a chiastic way. So Isaiah 55. Verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So here's how it works. The first line and the last line are parallel. The first line of verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. The last line of verse 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Then the second line, and then in the next line up. So the second line of verse 8, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In verse 8, so are my ways higher than your ways. Same word, okay? And then you come to the central issue, verse 9, first phrase, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth. Here's the point. He's saying, he's saying, as high, again, as high as the heavens are. That's how far my thoughts are different from your thoughts and my ways than your ways. You think you know what you're thinking or what you're, what you're talking about? You don't have a clue. In fact, you don't have such a clue that it's so, the, the difference between the way you think and the way God thinks, the way you walk and the way God says you should walk, are so far apart you can't even imagine. That's what he's saying. And so when we say, well, God, I just don't understand. Well, no, duh, you don't understand. Neither do I. Because the difference between me and him are so far, I cannot possibly understand. Until I go to the Word, and I begin to understand who God is, and begin to understand how God thinks, and begin to understand how God does things, I can begin to understand, I can begin to move toward that great chasm. Because God has revealed this to us. And I just try and figure it out on my own. <laughs> it makes no sense. But God's ways are so much higher than ours. His thoughts are so far beyond ours. And that's why God can say things like, in Psalm 116, verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. When we, when we experience the death of a loved one, we can't even sometimes catch our breath. It's so overwhelmingly grief, uh, grieving. And then we read that and say, how is that possible? Because God's ways are so far removed from ours. His thoughts, His understanding of things, of eternity, are so far removed from ours. And so it brings us comfort to realize what I'm feeling right now. What I'm thinking right now is not accurate to all the truth. It's true that I'm feeling this. It's real. But there's a bigger, much bigger perspective here. So the more we understand the way God has arranged and, and put together Hebrew poetry and the truths here, the more we can understand the depth of what God is communicating because God is communicating truth but He's doing it in a very highly emotive and illustrative way that speaks not just to our mind but to our heart. And our heart is where the springs of life come from. 
So when we, when we can get it deep in our heart, it impacts the way we live. And as I have written there, these parallels, the ones I've given you, most of them are just two lines, but they can be two lines, they could be three, four, a whole stanza of how this works. The other thing about Hebrew poetry is that it's characterized by vivid figures of speech. Some like some English, but there are similes, which are comparisons between two things that resemble one another. Um, again, Psalm 23. I'm sorry, Psalm 1, Psalm 1 3 and 4, uh, which talk about, um, again, uh, speaking of the, the, the person, the contrast between uh, the person who delights in the Lord and the person who is wicked. But verse 3 uses a simile as a tree planted by streams of water yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither. And then he says, and whatever he does, he prospers. Just like the tree that's continually receiving nourishment from the stream, never running out of water, and in the, the leaves continue to, to be, be produced, the, the fruit is, is in its season. And he says, this is how it is with the person who, like in verse 2, meditates on the word day and night. That person is like that tree. Continually nourished. Whatever he does, he prospers. Spiritually, obviously. And then verse 4, again, is a simile. you got the wicked are not like that. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Resembling the, the, the chaff and the wicked and in judgment. <clears throat> chaff. If you if you understand the, 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 the farming issue here, the wheat and the chaff are together in a pile. And so what they did was they took the winnowing fork and they would throw it up in the air. And as the wind is blowing, the wind would drive the chaff away because the chaff's much lighter than the wheat. And so the chaff would be blown away and the wheat would fall back down. And that's how they separated. And he's basically saying, this is how it is in the judgment of the wicked. They're not like a tree that's continually nourished. They're like chaff that wind drives away. There's metaphors here in Scripture, which is a comparison in which one thing is declared to be another. Again, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. So, a metaphor. He's not literally a shepherd out in the field watching sheep. He is our shepherd. We are like sheep. He is like a shepherd to us. He does the things that a shepherd does. It's a metaphor to help us understand all those concepts. Hyperbole, which is the use of exaggeration. <laughs> Again, we say here in Psalm, Psalm 6, verse 6. <laughs> David says, I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. Well, obviously, literally, his bed's not swimming. He's using exaggeration to basically say, I am really grieving here. When someone says, you know, they're really crying, they cry their eyes out. They really cry their eyes literally out, right? It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. This is what poetry does. Exaggerates to make a point. If we don't know that, we say, well, the Bible's true in everything it says, so literally this bed was swimming. No. You have to understand it in the, the language and the, and the form that it's written in 
The last that I'll mention is what's called anthropomorphism. Big word, simply means that you basically, God is, is assigned certain physical attributes that he literally doesn't have, but it helps us understand. So, uh, for example, um, the example I gave you there, Psalm uh, 32, where, where uh, David says, uh, speaking for God, where God is speaking, God says that he counsels us with his eye upon us. God is spirit. God doesn't have an eye. But he watches us. And so he uses that as an image. Uh, again, Psalm 118 talks about the, the hand of the Lord. When, when we talk about the strong arm of the Lord, well, the Lord doesn't literally have an arm and a hand. He's a spirit. But we understand that because we can relate to that. That's what anthropomorphism is. It's simply attributing to God physical characteristics that we understand and help us to con convey the truth about God for us. So, one other thing about Hebrew poetry, and then we're going to look at a, a, a short passage of Scripture uh, in Psalms. And that is that Hebrew poetry sometimes is in alphabetic acrostic. You know what an acrostic is, right? They take the letters, they form... Uh, take the letters that of something and they uh, they start that each phrase starts with that letter. So Psalm 119, and, and I mention this because next week we're going to start into Psalm 119 for our themes of worship. Psalm 119 is an alphabetic acrostic. In other words, each uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet begins right the verses. So in Psalm 119, every eight verses begin with the same letter. First eight verses begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second eight begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The third with the next. That helps them to remember. Can you imagine you're in school and someone says, I want you to memorize Psalm 119. All 176 verses. Okay. <laughs> but if they're written in a style that's easier to remember, well, I know that these eight verses begin with this letter, and these verses begin with the next letter. And then it will, it's a trigger in your brain to help you remember. So it's written to help them. And, and the other thing about it is because Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God. You can say from A to Z, the Word of God, all these things about the Word of God. And so we have a few examples of that in Scripture. Um, and uh, and so Lamentations is another one that's written that way. Um, it's uh, every verse, first first chapter, second chapter, and a fourth chapter have twenty two verses in them, and every verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. Twenty two letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter three is sixty six, so every three verses begins. That's the way it is. So um, I think chapter five is different. Has 22 verses, but it's not written as an acrostic. I, I didn't understand that, why that was, but uh, it is the way it is. So anyway, that's Hebrew poetry 101, if you will. Uh, just really quickly, you have it on your paper, the, the essentials there. You can go back, refer to those things, and hopefully that's helpful to you, uh, as you as you read through and work through that. Now, within the fi five books of poetry, there is three that are called wisdom literature. Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. What is wisdom? 
Wisdom is the thing we're lacking in our world today, particularly the culture of the United States. And sometimes I, I look and I say, where's all the common sense? Well, in reality, common sense should be equated to wisdom. Because wisdom, as one person put it, is the discipline of applying truth to one's life in, the, in light of experience. Right? We say common sense is something that everyone should know because it's just, you, you kind of learn it as you go. You know, you experience life and you just kind of come to know these things. Well, wisdom is kind of like that. Why is there no common sense? Why is there no wisdom in our world? Well, somebody tell me what the Scripture says in Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Is there any fear of the Lord in our culture? No. So should we be surprised when there's no wisdom? When I look at some politicians and I say, you know what, I think sometimes they look and say, what is the best thing to do? What makes the most sense? Let's do the opposite. And I look and I say, how could you come up with that? Because there's no wisdom. Because there's no fear of the Lord, therefore there's no wisdom. So what do you do? You do the opposite of wisdom. It's called foolishness. That's where we are. Of all people, we should not be surprised by that. Grieved by it? Absolutely. But certainly not surprised by it. I define wisdom as simply this. The skillful application of truth to the circumstances of life. Because wisdom is, is not just in knowledge. It's, it's the ability to take that knowledge and with skill apply it appropriately in life. So the question I want to answer today with a few minutes we have left in, in Proverbs chapter 2 is where does wisdom come from and what is required from me to get it? Well, we've already kind of answered the, the question. Um, but in Proverbs chapter 2, it's stated even more clearly. 2 verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. It comes from the Lord. Yes, 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Another proverb says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. Another one, chapter 1, verse 7, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All those are synonymous uh, concepts. Yes, the Lord is the one who gives it, and He gives it to those who fear Him. But here in chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 2 of Proverbs, in the first four verses, which we're going to key on, we're given instructions on what our part is to prepare ourselves to be ready to receive from the Lord the wisdom He wants to give us. What is our part? Proverbs 2, verses 1-4. through 4, He says, My son, if you will receive My sayings and treasure My commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for us for hidden treasures, then you will discern what? The fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
So there's four questions that come out of those four verses that we can ask ourselves if we want to have wisdom. And the first question is this, are we treasuring God's wisdom? God's wisdom is found in God's Word. Are we treasuring God's wisdom? Because he says, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you. The word treasure here is the same word that's used in Psalm 119, verse 11, that says, Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. What does that mean? It means I've hid it in my heart. I've taken the word and I've put it into my heart. And I've treasured it. I see it as valuable. And so I've taken it and I've hidden it away in my heart. Why? Because it's from the heart, brother, springs of life. So I want to put the Word in there so when the Word's in my heart, the Word will come out of my heart in the circumstances of life. That's wisdom. God's Word is already given to us. It's wisdom already given. If we're not placing a high value on God's Word, we're not placing a high value on wisdom. So when we ask the question, are we treasuring God's wisdom, really we're saying, am I looking to God's Word, His revealed wisdom, am I treasuring this? Because if I treasure this, I'm treasuring wisdom. If I'm not treasuring this, if this book sits on the shelf and collects dust, and I only bring it out every Sunday when I bring it to church, I'm not really treasuring God's wisdom. Interestingly enough, if you go to verse 7, my translation says, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. The word stores up is the same Hebrew word for treasure in verse 1. So the idea here is that God is storing up wisdom so that He can give it. But it says in verse 6, right, from the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. God has spoken this Word into existence through those who wrote it. And so now we have the, the Word of God for us and God is storing it up to give it to those who are looking for it, who are treasuring it. It's being stored up. And the thing about this concept of being stored up that I love is when you store something up, you are, you are storing it up to be used at another time. This is how it is. I mean, it's always wonderful when you're going through something and you say, God, I need help to understand. You read something and it's like, boom, it's right there. And you say, I can apply that right now to this situation. I mean, that's great, but that doesn't happen every day. But every day... When I read the Word of God, I'm asking God, show me what you want to show me here. And I, and I intentionally take some truth from that and hide it in my heart. And I store it up there. Then one day when I face a situation, I say, huh, I have something stored up that applies to that. Bingo. Wisdom. But if I'm not treasuring God's Word in it every day, taking from it, and putting it into my life, then when I come to the situation, I got nothing. So what do I do? 
well, I do what I think I should do. And because my ways are so far removed from his ways and my, my thoughts are so far from his, I do the stupid thing. It's called foolishness. So are we treasuring God's wisdom? Second one. Are we prepared to receive God's wisdom? Verse 2. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart. This is intentional preparation. This is taking an intentional step to listen for, to go after, to incline your heart toward it. How do we intentionally prepare to receive God's wisdom? Again, by paying attention to the Word. Making it a priority in our lives. Without that, we're not preparing. Biblical wisdom is not a mystery. It's not mysterious at all. It's very practical. It's simply the result of making the Word of God important in our life. The longer you do that, and the longer you apply truth to the circumstances of life, the more skillful you become at doing so. The wiser you get. So are you prepared to receive it? Thirdly, are we asking for God's wisdom? Verse 3, if you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding. Again, these are these are images, words he uses there that are more than just, well, you know, God, if you get around to it, you know, I could really use some. No, this is, I need it. It's a desperation. There's an urgency here. I need wisdom. And so, God, would you please give it to me? We're told in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, verse 5, that if we lack wisdom, we should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and he, he will have it. Just ask. Chapter 4 of James says you have not because you ask not. I don't know how much more simple that is. If I need wisdom, I should ask. If I'm not asking, I'm not getting. The psalmist says, I'm, or, or, or the, the Solomon, I saying, I'm lifting it up. Lift it up. <coughs> Our asking should be in accord with the Word of God, which brings us to the last one, and that is, are we seeking God's wisdom? Are we going after it? Are we seeking it? Seek her as silver. Search for her as for hidden treasure. You ever misplace something valuable? Tear the house apart looking for it. It's important to you. If it's not that important, it's like, oh well, I'll just buy another one, whatever. I remember when, sorry, I didn't ask your permission for that. I remember when, uh, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Um, <laughs> I remember when Valerie misplaced her keys. And, uh, I mean, all the keys, car keys. House keys, whatever keys. I mean, we, we turn a house upside down looking for the thing. 
and we, we just never did find it. It must have got must have fallen in the trash can or something. Um, but I mean, we you know it's not. Yeah, we can go and get new keys, but it's like what happened to them and who has them and you know what are they going to do with them and all that kind of thing. So we looked and looked and looked. We I mean we we looked for forever for that. Never did find them. So um, if you find them, <laughs> let me know. Uh, that's been years, so I have no idea anywhere that. that uh, um, but you know, when something something is important to you, you look for it. You, you'll you'll keep looking. So really, the diligence of the search reveals the value of the treasure. So, here comes the convicting part. You and I can never say we don't have time to read the Word of God. I've heard it, right? And I've maybe even made that excuse. Everyone in this room has the same amount of time every day. About 24 hours in a day. Why is it that some people have the time to consistently be in the Word of God every day and spending time with God in prayer and talking to God about what's going on in their life and asking for wisdom and searching the wisdom in the Word and then, and then being able to apply that? And there's others who, who don't. It's not about time. It's about priority. It's about what's important to us. It's about understanding. I need this. And there are times in which God allows us to go through very hard things to remind us we need Him and we need His wisdom. And He creates in us a desperation that we don't have by discipline. I can be honest with you and tell you that every day when I read the Word of God, I'm not I'm not jacked up about going into the Word, and I'm not I'm not pulling some some incredible nugget of truth out of it. But the consistency of every day, I'm I'm learning little things here and there, things that reinforce things I've already learned. That maybe again, you read through the Psalms and you see something illustrated in a way, and you say, "Wow, I know that truth," but this. This really brings it alive for me. It helps me to see how that makes sense in the context of real life. And it's just, it's just adding to what's already stored there. It's just more and more and more. And then one day, it's an opportunity to use it. And so this morning. Make your time with God a priority. Go to God and to His Word consistently. And let that time with Him be a time of storing up. Because He says, if, verse 1, you do these things. Verse 3, if you cry out. Verse 4, if you seek. Then verse 4, then. Verse 5, then you will discern. Then you'll discover. But if you don't, then you won't. If you do, then you will. Again, it's not rocket science. It's just this simple stuff. 
the, the, the rest of the chapter goes on to basically say, wisdom will give you a deeper walk with God. Wisdom will give you discernment in life, in circumstances. Wisdom will protect you from evil. It'll protect you from, deliver you, verse 12, from the way of, the, of evil, the man who speaks perverse things. Verse 16, deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. And lastly, wisdom will give you a way of walking that pleases God. Verse 20, so you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. We need wisdom. But we need to be storing it up so that when the time comes to do it, we will, we will have it. God, we pray that you will help us to understand that we have a need. A need for wisdom. Thank you for these poetic books of the Bible that bring truth out of the realm of, of just knowledge into the realm of experiential wisdom. Thank you for giving us these books. Lord, we, there are times when we, we don't understand concepts and we say, we just wish God would have gave us a doctrinal statement so we know what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe and just clearly laid it out. But, but God, you didn't. You gave us stories and you gave us poetry so that we not only can see how truth is lived out in life, we can experientially know it apply it to the circumstances of life. God, would you continue to work in us? And as we've stated, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, a a healthy understanding of who you are, the great God of the universe. A healthy respect for your authority over our lives. And a submission to it. Lord, help us walk in that as we submit to you in your word. And then as that word gets into our life, it produces wisdom. God, bring it about. Thank you. Thank you for reminding us today. We ask that as we walk through these books of the Bible, we gain a deeper understanding of who you are deeper understanding of how these books minister to our souls. As we break up, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.